Uh, well, you've just had Leviticus 16 read to you. You've just had what I think is one of the really, really important bits of the Bible read to you. Um, we're doing a little series called Bits of the Bible That Are Really Important. It's just three sermons of bits of the Bible that I think are really important. Who in their right mind would choose a bit of the book of Leviticus for that? Um, well, I did. Hopefully you'll get an idea why by the end. Um, what you just had read to you is what is called uh, Yom Kippur, how to do Yom, Yom Kippur, which is the annual day of atonement. Uh, congratulations, we've learned a bit of Hebrew today. Yom Kippur, it's just Yom Day Kippur atonement. Um, I couldn't get the fancy Hebrew font to work on the slide. Sorry about that. Not as fancy as all that. Basically, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is a yearly ceremony where the high priest of Israel would uh, do a particular ceremony to cleanse the tabernacle of all the defilement of sin that Israel had brought over the course of the year on God's dwelling place. Uh, the reason why a tabernacle model at the back comes with uh, five animals and a high priest is because that's what you need to do Yom Kippur. You need a high priest and you need five animals. Um, so we're talking about a weird ancient Jewish ceremony that centres on a priest killing stuff today. Um, that's, that's what the sermon's about. Um, I want you to know why it's important, though. Um, Jesus claimed the Old Testament was about himself. Uh, this is Jesus talking to two guys after Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't recognise him at this point. Well, this is just after they recognise him. And he said to them, how foolish you are, how slow you are to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer all these things and then enter his glory? And it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's just a way of saying, beginning with the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So he just opened the Old Testament and just told them over and over, passage after passage, see, this is about me, this is about me. This teaches you about what my death on the cross was all about. Uh, last week... We read Romans chapter 3, which I think is a really important bit of the Bible. If you, you, you didn't hear that sermon, get, get the podcast. It's uh, what a lot of people think is the most important bit of the Bible. Uh, we learned, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, the way of being right with God has been known, to which the law and the prophets testify. See, that says the Old Testament testifies to this righteousness given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through... And then there's some Old Testament words. You can't understand this passage without knowing Old Testament. Through the redemption. That's an Exodus word. That comes from the book of Exodus. That's how you get to know what that means. The came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as, and here's a bunch of Leviticus words, a sacrifice of atonement or propitiation, I, I, I said was a good way to translate that, through the shedding of his blood. Why shedding blood? Well, that's, that's Leviticus 17, verse 11. To be received by faith. Well, if you've got your Bible there, have a look at Leviticus 17, 11. I didn't mean to do this. But you see a bit of uh, some of the theory going on how sacrifice works in the book of Leviticus. If you open your Bible to Leviticus 17, 11, it says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given the creature to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is by the blood that one makes atonement for one's life. See what it's saying? It's the blood symbolises the life, and so killing the creature on the altar and, and the shedding of blood uh, is uh, sacrifice for your sins. It uh, uh, um, stands in your place uh, for you dying in your place. So this book is from the Old Testament. I'll just leave that up there. This is the main thing Leviticus is on about. It wants us to teach, the, teach us that God is holy, um, when we talk about God, people will talk about all sorts of topics, right? Uh, God's all-knowing, God's all-loving, God's all-powerful, all, all these sorts of things. I don't think we're really talking about the God of the Bible until the word holy comes up. I think it, we're not quite there yet because a lot of the Old Testament is about God saying, he wants us to say, 
He's holy. He wants us to understand what that means. What's holy? Well, holy basically means purity of character and moral standards and and that sort of thing. What God's holiness means in practice is certain things can't be in his presence. Unholiness can't be in his presence. It means that sin, demons, disease, death, all those sorts of things are completely incompatible with with his presence and they just can't be in his presence. It's kind of like an allergic reaction. You can't have those two things in the same place. God's holiness and sin, demons, death, disease, evil can't be in God's presence. I mean, we all have our own version of personal holiness. I bet you every person in this room has things that you just would not allow in your presence. Not just behaviour standards, but, you know, hygiene. (laughs) We, we, We have all sorts of things that we wouldn't tolerate being in our presence and we wouldn't let remain in our presence. We'd fix them. And we would do that to our houses as well. We wouldn't let sewerage flow through our house. We wouldn't let our house stay in a certain state. It's out of, it isn't fitting with my character and who I am and the way I see my, my life being. My house is holy to me. It needs to meet who I am. It needs to reflect my character. It's kind of the vibe that we're getting with what it means that God is holy. God's holiness determines what's fitting for his presence. Now, it's a problem because the basic hope that the Bible offers and that Christians have is to dwell with God and enjoy his blessings forever. But as you read the Bible, dwelling with God is a pretty big deal. It's pretty impossible. God's holy. And so we're broken, we're sinful. So many aspects of us are just completely incompatible with God's presence. And so when you read in the Bible for people to come into God's presence, it's always bad news. Always bad news. In a few weeks, we'll look at uh, Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah, who's a really good man, really, by, by our standards, comes into God's presence. There's angels around God singing a song, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the issue. God is holy. When you come into his presence, realize he's holy. When Isaiah enters God's presence, he's immediately aware of just how desperately short he falls of God's standards. And here's, what, here's how he responds. Woe to me, I'm ruined. I think he was saying it more emotionally than I am. <laughs> For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. He's just despairing because he knows he's not okay with God because he's come into God's holy presence and he knows he's doomed. God actually fixes that, but that's, that's a sermon for in a few weeks. Have a look at Leviticus 16, verse 2, where we read. It's good to open your Bible. Page 115, open it if you haven't got your Bible open. It'd be useful to have. Page 115. So holiness is about what's fitting for God's presence. And so it's a big deal that things won't go into his presence that are unholy. Verse 2 says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron, Aaron's the first high priest, that's why he's being told this, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into my most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over over the atonement cover. Aaron, the high priest of Israel, is not fit for God's presence. Nobody can enter God's presence and hope to live. However, there's hope. Have a look at verse 3. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. And it goes on giving a bunch of instructions. So there's grace, there's hope, there's God providing a means, a way. So this impossible thing, dwell with God, enjoy his blessings forever, is going to take a lot of work. And the work that it takes to achieve that is what Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, is going to teach us about. It'll teach us what humanity looks like from the perspective of God's holiness and how God's going to fix that problem of making us fit for his presence.
Now, let's get ourselves up to speed with where Israel's at in Leviticus chapter 16. Um, Leviticus is part of the story of the Exodus. So Israel um, was saved, redeemed, is that word that we heard about what Jesus has done for us, from Egypt. God saved them with his mighty hand and brought them to Mount Sinai and said, you are my people, you are my special possession. Be holy as I am holy. That's what he said to them. Most basic command. I'm holy. Be holy as I'm holy. If you're going to be my possession, you need to reflect my character, my standards. But they also got a sense that they couldn't approach him at Sinai or they'd die. And so God provided for them this tent. We told them to make this tent, which his presence would go with them uh, kind of inside uh, and, and lead them to the promised land. Um, the tent was kind of like the, the experience of Mount Sinai, but it was now could travel with them. God would travel with them as their king via this tent called the tabernacle. The tabernacle is basically a series of fences, uh, like layers. And the layers are supposed to provide like a buffer zone for the really clean stuff, the really holy God in the middle, and the really dirty stuff on the outside. That's basically what it's about. Um, but we learn mostly, this is, this is my model of the tabernacle, it's at the back there. Um, we learn what the tabernacle's about, if you know what its three names are, it kind of tells you most stuff about it. The word tabernacle means a dwelling place, it's God's dwelling place among his people. Sanctuary means holy, holy place. It's a holy building, it reflects God's character, it's where he lives. Um, and it's a tent of meeting where Israel gets to meet God. They get to meet him, you know, kind of at a distance, separated by all the fences. God's holy dwelling among them where they could meet him. Now Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, is kind of an uh, instruction manual on how to be holy for Israel. Um, it's got a lot of really strange stuff in it. Uh, here's the main issue going on. Uh, it says in chapter 10 to Israel, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you're to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So there's two distinctions there. There's holy stuff that is fitting for God's presence and common stuff that isn't. And the common stuff is broken into two groups. There's clean, uh, unclean things, which are r- really bad the further down, and clean things, which can sort of be a bit closer to God's presence. So it's all about kind of distance to God, clean, unclean, holy, all that kind of thing. Now, as you read Leviticus, you'll find all sorts of really, really random rules cultic things, you go, and what on earth's going on with that? Um, I can't talk about that with going on a big, bigger topic, but I'll tell you real quick summary version here. What's the rationale for all those unclean things, clean things in, in Leviticus? Basically, it is um, anything that represents or is associated with sin, death, or the curse of Genesis 3 is unclean. That's basically what's going on. Um, Anything associated with sin, death, or the curse of Genesis 3 is unclean. So if you're reading through in the, the weird rules, think about those, how it relates to those things, and it's probably the answer. So important points to come out of this. Um, holy and unclean things are completely incompatible. Can you have light and can you have darkness and occupy the same space at the same time? No. That's the same with holiness and unholiness. Holiness and unclean things are completely incompatible. And contact with um, unclean things will defile holy things. It'll make them dirty. We know that, don't we? I've got the flu today, so I won't come too close to you, but it's contagious. That's that's kind of how it works. It's the same with uh, holy and unclean. Unclean things need to be separated from holy things so they don't become uh, defiled. Now, the book of Leviticus teaches Israel to look at the whole world, teaches us, actually, to look at the whole world in terms of how holy things are. So there's kind of this holiness grading system that I've got up on the screen. Where's that laser pointer? There it is. This thing up here. It's kind of a scale of how holy things are. God is very holy. 
something's a very, very profane, completely opposite to, uh, to his presence, uh, and so they're very far from him and need to be kept far from him. It's kind of a holiness metre of how things match up by God's standards. Now, first down the scale there, we've got profane things. That's the world. That's how Leviticus uh, describes it, uh, the world where people follow other gods, don't follow God, do whatever they want. In Leviticus, it's associated with major impurities and carcasses and the dead and all this sort of thing. Very unclean. Incidentally, I just need to tell you, this is, this is Australia. That, that's where we fit on the scale as a, as a nation. I, like, ceremonial terms, without being made holy, that's a starting point for the nations. Profane. Completely not fitting for God's presence. Unless God does something completely drastic to change that. Then there's Israel, who've been called by God to be holy, and actually in ceremonial terms, to be clean. However, uh, dirt's contagious and so they do things, and really, so they're clean and unclean. They're kind of, they're clean and live in the camp here, and then they'll be unclean and go and live outside the camp. So there's really two camps of Israel. They go in and out of the camp, depending on how things were going with all the symbols that showed whether they were clean or unclean. They were in constant flux between the two. So there's the other two stages. But then there's the tabernacle in the middle, which is God's holy dwelling place. And let's just zoom in on that. You get a feel for how that works. Um, If you go to the courtyard there, it's ceremonially clean. There's a burnt offering altar there, which we're going to use the Day of Atonement. There's a wash basin. Um, You go into the sanctuary, which is the building in the middle, the the tent in the middle. Um, There's the table of the bread of the presence that shows that Israel has fellowship with their God. There's the incense altar you hear about in a minute. They need that for practical reasons. Um, And the lampstand... Uh, which, uh, I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> it's too, too many sentences. Um, the most holy place, though, is where God dwells. It's very, very holy. The Ark of the Covenant's there. That's kind of God's throne room among his people. And it must not come into contact with the uncleanliness of people who are out of step with God's ways, people who are sinful and broken, and that kind of thing. Now... One of the big topics that Leviticus deals with is sin. It presents sin in a really interesting way. It presents it as really, really, really gross. Um, Something has struck me as I've read Leviticus. Sin's described as pollution. Uh, Kind of defilement is the word your translation probably used. But as you read it, you get the impression it's more like thick sewer sludge uh, that attaches to things. You know the kind that is at the waste recycling plant sort of moving about in one of those big vats or something? It's kind of that sort of thing. That's how sin is presented in Leviticus. It's actually slightly worse than that. It's magnetic sewer sludge in the book of Leviticus. Because here's how it works. In the book of Leviticus, whenever people sin, the tabernacle gets polluted. The sewer sludge slops onto the tabernacle. That's the picture, that, that spiritually, of what kind of goes on. That's a picture you're supposed to get in your head of how it affects God's holy dwelling. And it depends what the sin is. So for lesser sins and impurities, it pollutes the courtyard, the outside section there, the clean bit. For unintentional sins that are real sins but you didn't mean it, well, it pollutes the incense altar and the holy place, the next level in. But the really deliberate, severe sins, they pollute the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne room. They get up in God's face where he can really smell it. That's how it's presented. It's magnetic sewer sludge that when Israel sins, it gets right up in God's face, depending how severe it is. And so it's impossible to read the book of Leviticus and have the view that lesser sins don't matter because they stink real bad. <laughs> Something that struck me. 
But it's also impossible to read the book of Leviticus and have the view that all sin's equally bad. There's, there's some sins that just force their way into God's presence and up his nose. It's kind of the way it's presented. Defiles his holy throne. I'll tell you a fictional story. Uh, it kind of gets some of these things together. I want you to imagine there's a dog in a marketplace. It's uh, smelly, it's cut up, it's bleeding, and it's in slavery to its masters who beat it. Its main hobby consists of going to local sewer recycling plant and swimming around in those wonderful sludges, pool things. That's its hobby. I generously decide to buy this dog from its cruel masters. I've redeemed it. It's mine. I decide that that dog, as my possession, is now holy to me. That's what it means. It's mine, and it will reflect me, for crying out loud, if I'm going to possess it. It must be holy as I am holy. Therefore, taking a sewer dog home is not a small issue. Would you take a sewer dog home? doesn't match your standards of holiness very well, does it? smells pretty bad. I wash it, I clean it, I set apart it, it's holy. I do all the things to make it not a sewer dog. I make it clean. I make it fit for my presence. But as soon as I bring it home, I find out the experience of owning that dog is not straightforward. That dog's existence being defined by sewerage and it is incapable of being holy by my standards. It's just incapable of it. The dog offends me at various degrees, various levels. Sometimes it goes for its little excursions to the sewer sludge swimming plant and it comes home and it walks into the yard and shakes it all off and I'm just inside and I can smell it through the window and that, that's pretty bad, right? I, I, I don't much like that. Sometimes, though, it does worse. It forces its way through the door, walks into the centre of the living room and shakes its sewer sludge all the carpet and the lounge. That's a little worse. <laughs> I tell you what really offends me the days that dog forces its way in the door, comes down the hall and comes into my little throne room study thing. Some of you have seen it. And it does, you know, you've seen the movies where the dog shakes in slow motion and it all flies everywhere, all over your stuff. It goes over my books and my guitars and this miserable creature that I've been so generous to has just defiled my dwelling place. You see how offensive that is, how insulting it is, and it's all normal behaviour for that blasted dog. Now, you think about it, you think, what's the future of my relationship with that dog? It's going to take some pretty drastic measures, isn't it? Like, I just can't see a future if that was actually the case. Friends, what the book of Leviticus should do is train our spiritual nostrils to how yuck sin is. Uh, Sin isn't just stuffing up. Sin is flinging sewer stench at a holy God and expecting him to be our friend, like that dog. That's how sin's presented in the book of Leviticus. So the sewer sludge of sin needs to be dealt with decisively or no one can dwell in his presence. That's what the Day of Atonement's about. Now, here's the tabernacle. We'll have a look around here. You walk at the entrance of the tabernacle. First thing that you see and you, you observe is that there, that thing's five... Well, where's the uh, measurement of the other one? Okay, good, it's on the side. The altar is about two and a half metres wide. It's this massive, massive burnt offering altar. You search, look through the entrance and you kind of can't get past that there's this massive altar in the way. The way I like to think of it is that ancient proverb about a bear hunt, going on a bear hunt, I'm not scared. There's a big altar in the way. You can't go over it, you can't go under it, you have to go through it. That's the point. That's what you're supposed to see when you look in. There's this enormous altar, the altar where the penalty for sin is death, and God allowed animals to be offered in the place of the sinner, a life for a life, to symbolically wash away the sewer sludge 
to bring atonement, to remove sin and restore the relationship. Now, not everybody can do this because, remember, that's clean space. You can't just go in there, any person. So God gives clean people. He sets apart these holy guys called priests. This is my priest. His name's Steve for some reason. Not sure why. Um, And he can approach God for you. He's kind of the spiritual janitor in a way. Now, he will offer, give offerings for your sin over the course of the year, but over the course of the year, the tabernacle has been constantly polluted by people's sin and never cleansed. The dog's forced its way in the door. The pollution's gone everywhere. How can a holy God keep living there? Well, the priest's got to deal with it on the Day of Atonement. It's about cleaning the tabernacle from the inside out and carrying sin far from God's presence. The Day of Atonement, this is the sole reason Israel could dwell in God's presence. Let me give you the uh, slideshow version of the reading that Tim gave. Um, Chapter 16, 1 to 5, talk about some animals you need. Here they are. Um, For the priest and for his family, you'll need some sacrificial animals. You'll need a bull and a ram. The reason you need a bull for the uh, priest's family is because it's the most expensive animal you can get, and a priest should know better, really. He should be sinning less. It costs a lot to pay for the priest's sin, essentially. Uh, For the people of Israel, you need two goats and you need a ram. Now, in preparation for what's... uh, Excuse me. What's going to happen here, you collect the two goats and you set them aside and you cast lots over them. Uh, one of them is for the Lord, for Yahweh God, and one is for Azazel. Uh, we translate it as scapegoat. That's where our English word scapegoat comes from. Uh, a goat for carrying away is what that means. I'll tell you what Azazel's about in a, in a short while. Um, and you cho- choose which one's going to be for Azazel and which one's for the Lord. Have a look at chapter 16, verse 11. And we're up to step one of the Day of Atonement. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he's to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. So here's Aaron. He's brought his bull along. I'm not allowed to show more than that in a you know, 10 a.m. time slot. Sorry. Um, the map on the top hopefully show you where he is in the tabernacle, if you can see it. Uh, burnt offering altar, sacrifices of the thing. What's he doing? He brings the blood into the tabernacle, into the, the sanctuary, uh, goes behind the curtain, but not before taking uh, some incense from the altar. Why does he take incense from the altar? Because when he goes in, he throws it in front of his face so he can't see the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, where God's symbolically dwelling among Israel, or he will die. That's why. He drips some of the blood on the altar, and he goes out again. Why has he done that? Because he's gone to the very centre of God's holy place, and he's purified it. He's, he's cleaned it. He's done spring cleaning for his sin. Step two, goat for the people's sin offering. It's the same thing again, kills the goat, sacrifices it, goes in, grabs the incense, throws it ahead of him, puts it on the altar. Okay, he's cleaned the people's sin from the centre of the, uh, the tabernacle as well. The third thing he has to do, you go to the next layer out. He atones for the incense altar, for the, the middle section, the holy place. The next thing he'll do after that, moving out again, is he'll atone with the same blood for the burnt offering altar on the outside. And you kind of get the picture of what's going on. There's a picture of what's going on. He's, moved, he's kind of cleansed from the very holy place in the middle and moved it out to the entrance of the, the, the stain of sin to the entrance of the tabernacle. I remember years ago when, um, when I was a teacher, there was, um, uh, we were on a coach. You know those coaches that have air conditioning and therefore they don't have windows that open? The air conditioning broke um, and it stunk in there for some reason. It made one of the kids vomit and then they all wanted to vomit. And it happened to be in the back seat, you know, right in the deepest, darkest part of the thing. Um, so how do you clean that out? Well, you, you have to use water and you, you sweep it right from the back, right out and out the door. It's kind of that action. You start from the back, the deepest bit, and you take it 
down the aisle and through the door. That's the action we've taken, atoning for the tabernacle. Where's the sin go? Remember, we've got all this sewerage that we've just purged from the, uh, from the tabernacle. That's what's going on. Um, <coughs> step five, scapegoat. Have a look at chapter 16, verse 20. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar. See, he's making atonement not for the people at this point. He's making atonement for the building, for the tent, to clean it. Uh, he shall bring forth the live goat. He's to lay both hands on the head of the goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He'll send the goat into the wilderness and uh, in the care of someone appointed at the task, the goat will carry on itself all the sins of Israel to a remote place and the man shall release it into the wilderness. Scapegoat ritual takes the goat, presents it at the tent of meeting. Sorry, my guy isn't flexible enough to lay both hands on the, the, the head of the goat. This is the humiliating bit. It's where the priest confesses all the wickedness that Israel's committed before God for that year. In the hearing of them all, it's humiliation before God. It's, it's Christianity 101, folks. We confess our sins for a God who wants to forgive us and is providing the way to forgive us. That's what's going on here. And he's transferring the guilt of the people to the goat. So the goat's now carrying it, a goat for carrying away. That's what scapegoat means. So the goat carries it away, using the diagram from earlier, carries it far from the camp. We had that wonderful bit of scripture read to us earlier. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's, that's what's going on. That's, that's what this is about. The goat carries the people's sin away, away from their holy God and away from them so that they can be holy before him again. Now, I'll tell you what Azazel means. Azazel is the name of a demon. Um, that might surprise you. The goat, there's a goat for Yahweh, which is the sin offering for the people's sin. There's a goat for a demon, Azazel. Um, it's not a sacrifice for a demon. What it's saying is it's kind of a representative for that belongs out there where demons live. In here where God lives, we're cleaning the tent, we're making it holy. The goat that carries sin belongs out there where demons live. The goat for Azazel. Because it has no, it, it has no place in here. Sin has no place in here and it's carried far away. After that, uh, the priest wash, washes his clothes. I don't, I'm not taking the clothes off my model, sorry. It's probably good. Um, takes off his clothes, washes them, puts on new things. You'll notice all the stuff that's involved in getting rid of the pollution of sin gets dirty spiritually, so they have to wash it and burn things and all that sort of stuff. That's what's going on there. And then they do two burnt offerings. Now, burnt offerings, if you le- read Leviticus 1, show full-hearted devotion to God. That's what it's about. And so we're starting a new year of full-hearted devotion to God, one for the, the priest's family and himself and one for the people of Israel. And so again, they sacrifice the, uh, the sheep to start a new year where they sincerely desire to obey God. And then afterwards, they just burn everything and wash everything and day of atonement's over. And they do that year after year after year after year. And God, who can't stand the sewer stench of sin, has been incredibly generous to his people. Because the sewer stench stuff is just a picture, so we can kind of get a, a sense of it, how, how, how he responds to it, how he sees it. You think about that dog and how much... I, I would not tolerate that dog being part of my household, I'll tell you what. But how generous God has been to his people in cleaning them and tolerating them for bearing with them over time. That's what the Day of Atonement's about. Dealing with their sins so they could... But it wasn't a very decisive solution because they just kept doing it year after year. It just kept happening. 
And Israel kept sinning. It didn't change their hearts. It didn't change their sinning. Um, and at best, it didn't give access to God. One man, the high priest, got to go into that little room once a year. The Day of Atonement's the only day that that guy went into that room and he just did it once a year and that was it. That's the best access to God they had. So much for dwelling in God's presence to enjoy his blessings forever. But as Jesus, no doubt, taught those men on the Emmaus Road, that wasn't about bulls and goats and people, Israel being clean for a year. That was actually supposed to teach kind of like the mechanics, the, the dynamic of how Jesus' death on the cross works. Jesus in one day was the sin offering for the sin of the whole world. He died for our sins like those goats did. He was also the scapegoat for our sin. Have a look at what this, this bit of the Bible says. This is one of Stuart's favourite bits, actually. It says, uh, God made him, Jesus, uh, who had no sin, Jesus had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see that transfer going on? Jesus had no sin, but he died a sinner on the cross with our sin on his shoulders so that we might be righteous, holy in God's sight. And it's just wonderful. Every time you read a New Testament letter, just cherish the way it starts because here they are basically how they all start to the saints in whatever place he's writing to. You know what saints means? Sanctified, holy, very holy, fit for God's presence. That's what Jesus has done for us. Cherish that word saint, holy, sanctified. It means you're fit for God's presence because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. He's once for all offering for sin. It doesn't need to be repeated. And just as that tabernacle was purified... Jesus purified the heavenly places so we could live in heaven, in God's dwelling place with him. Now, if you understand what the Day of Atonement's about, you need to read the book of Hebrews. Just turn to the book of Hebrews for a moment now, and I'll show you what you should read. Because the book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus... Well, I'll put it on the screen. I think it's here. Good. Once for all, Day of Atonement. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins, scapegoat for our sins. He purified our way into God's heavenly tabernacle. Um, if you look particularly from chapter 8, just read chapter 8. It's, it, it's awesome. Listen to the beginning of this. Uh, page 1209. When you consider the sewer stench of sin, this stuff's just amazing. Now, the, point is, the main point of what we've been saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne, the majesty in heaven. So they had a priest who went into that little room once a year. We have a priest who sits in heaven, God's holy dwelling place, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not a mere human being. Every priest appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something for offer. If he was on earth, he would not be a priest, for there's already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve a sanctuary that's a copy and a shadow of what's in heaven. See, it's only, it was only ever a model, is what that's saying. This is why Moses uh, was warned when he said about building the tabernacle, see you make it according to the pattern I show you on the mountain. Uh, we had chapter 9 read to us, but come down chapter 9, verse 11, and listen, it talks about that tabernacle stuff we just looked at. Chapter 9, verse 11... <laughs> But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not made with human hands. That's to say it's not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus attaining eternal redemption. 
the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer sprinkled on those who ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they're outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so we may serve the living God? Come to chapter 10, and I'll finish with this one. Chapter 10, verse 11. You just have to read this stuff after you've read Leviticus and praise God for what Jesus has done. Chapter 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again and offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. By his one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We're all in the process, if you're a follower of Jesus, of following him and obeying him more and more, and in one sense, becoming more holy. But there's another sense, because of what Jesus has done, we stand in perfect relationship with him forever, because by one sacrifice, he's made perfect us forever in his sight. There's no repetition to be made. I hope you trust him. I hope you praise him for that. And I hope you can see why I think that's a really important part of the Bible. How about we thank God for our great Lord Jesus? Loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank and praise you for our great high priest, our sin offering, the Lord Jesus, who, like the scapegoat, carried our sins outside the camp of Israel and was brutally killed by ceremonially unclean Roman people so the people of all nations could be perfect in your sight forever. We thank you that he didn't just go into some tent, but that he uh, made the way into your own dwelling place so that we could dwell with you forever. We thank and praise you for that. We thank you that we could be made perfect through him. And we want to thank and praise you for him now. In Jesus' name. Amen.